0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, something a little bit different. I'm speaking with Alex Sue, the Head of Community Development at Ironclad. He's also a columnist at Above the Law. Now, if you don't know Alex, then where in the world have you been? Because Alex is a LinkedIn and TikTok sensation. I reached out to Alex because I'd read an article that he had written, which was titled "Profitable." misery. And he talks in that article about shit work. And he had me at shit work, which was essentially a reference to the kind of work that the dreaded billable hour, the cancer that is the billable hour, motivates law firms and associates in law firms to undertake because it's all chargeable. One of the propositions that I put to Alex that I think he agrees with me on that is that the responsibility for moving away from the billable hour model rests entirely with the general counsels and the in-house legal teams. We can't be expecting law firms to be moving away from what is a profitable model from them. Uh, And in particular, uh, if they're only delivering what the clients are asking for, then they're, of course, not going to change. So it's a great discussion. and, And kudos to Alex for the pivot in his career and the unique path that he's been able to carve out for himself. So I know you're gonna really enjoy the discussion. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Alex Sue, welcome to the show. Fantastic to have you on board. This is gonna be a
1: whole lot of fun, I can feel it. Jim, thank you so much for having me on the show. Really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, Alex, typically the audience I have, it's typically general counsels, but this is a little bit different, of course. Tell us a little bit about the Alex
1: Sue story and building the career arc there for us if you can. Sure. Um, Most people listening, if you're a general counsel or in the legal industry, you may have seen me on social media. I make a lot of silly, humorous skits on TikTok and I repost them in lots of different places. I was
0: thinking about that when introducing you as the TikTok legal sensation. And then I thought, is that a company of one? Is there anyone else out there in legal leveraging any kind of social media, let alone TikTok? But um, anyway, I'll let you carry on. But I did think yeah. about you, you being in a esteemed crowd of about one in legal and TikTok.
1: <laughs> well, Jim, uh, thank you for saying that. It's I'm not the only one. There are others that target different other segments of the community we all are a part of, but I will get to that in a second. As for my yep. story, I was a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by, by training. I practiced for six years, and then I made the jump to legal technology first in the e-discovery space. I was a salesperson. I was selling e-discovery to law firms. And somewhere along the way, I realized the power of social media and how I can post content and drive sales conversations from there. So I've been posting on LinkedIn for, gosh, it's got to be six years now. And about three years in, I made a pivot to the contract space, continuing to sell. And then about a year and a half ago, I joined Ironclad uh, on its community team. We do digital contracting. And yeah, it's it's been a fun ride just being able to see different parts of the ecosystem, you know, law firms, legal departments, legal technology companies. And, you know, I have the opportunity to make lots of jokes um, through my video content. So uh, that's what's brought me to here. Again, most people know me through my my funny videos or memes, but um, I've got a lot of other uh, work experience and, and a lot of other projects going on.
0: That's right. So what you're telling me, Alex, is you're more than just your memes. Is that what you're saying? <laughs>
1: I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah.
0: Take us back through. I know you had a couple of years at Sullivan and Cromwell, and that has clearly been a significant impact on, on your thinking, on the, on the content that you create. Talk a little bit about how that has impacted you.
1: So I joined a big law firm, uh, the most prestigious firm I could back when I was in law school as a summer associate, and then I joined as a full-time associate. I spent two years there, and a lot of what I experienced and saw there serves as the foundation for both my career and the content I create. So I make a lot of jokes about law firm life that I think resonate with people who are currently working in those firms. But I think the broader lesson I took away from from Big Law, from Sullivan and Cromwell and and elsewhere, uh, just by talking to friends, is that they're not the most efficient organizations. There's a lot of grunt work. Uh, I've written articles about this before, but uh, one thing that, I, that that really opened my eyes to technology was when I, when I left that firm and I joined a plaintiff's firm. And, and there I saw because they relied on contingency fees, they needed to be efficient. Uh, these were folks who were really early adopters of technology and they adopted things like remote depositions cloud-based e-discovery. And this was in 2014. So they would have two lawyers go up against, you know, dozens of big law firm legal teams. So so for me, it was eye-opening in that I saw that technology could could really have an impact on the practice. And that was probably the first time I thought about making a move to, to legal tech.
0: Now, now you, you did write something quite recently. You had me at shit work. <laughs> Tell the audience about that.
1: So uh, I wrote an article about shit work. Uh, The title of the article was "Profitable Misery," and a lot of it was stemmed from my own experiences as an associate. I I have a view that a lot of what large firms do internally, the way they manage work, the way they work with associates and junior lawyers, is that there's just a lot of grunt work that gets pushed down. That's not doesn't necessarily create value, but is very lucrative. For the firms. I call it shit work. And I've had a lot of experience with this shit work. Uh, these are things like creating chronologies of, of events from, from document review. It's document review itself. Uh, there's a lot of little things that you can do you do as a as a junior associate that could be done by technology or, or outsource providers or lots of other people or technology that that you don't necessarily need. A trained lawyer, an expensive trained lawyer, uh, charging a high hourly rate for. So uh, I wrote about it on my article, I guess. Uh, somehow it made the rounds on the internet, I think on Twitter. Maybe that's how you saw it. But um, it was something that I've been thinking about for, for almost a decade.
0: I hadn't described it before in that way. Typically, I've given you credit for the phrase shit work, but I think it's it just captures the description beautifully. And it does so because of the fee model or the basically the the financial model there in the legal industry, we talk about the currency, which is currently being used to manage um, law firm relationships, that is the currency that in-house teams use, the currency of the billable hour, because in fact, it is the cause of the profitable misery that you talk about because it incentivizes all of the wrong behaviors. It incentivizes input, um, time rather than innovation. How do I get to an outcome driven solution as quickly as possible and hopefully leveraging technology? Uh, So Alex, a topic which is actually dear (laughs) to the heart of the Pursuit team. So it really resonated, I can tell you, um, uh, here within our team.
1: I know that it resonates with you all. And and for me, I think, the way I framed it in the article has to do with careers, um, because as you know, a lot of times this work it, it doesn't serve the long-term goals of most associates of most junior lawyers. You're not going to become partner because you're great at creating charts and reviewing documents. You're going to become a partner based on your relationships with clients, um, based on strategy, based on how you you know think about case. Uh, strategy litigation, or handling the deal at a high level, and so there is this myth that's perpetuated and, and the story I share is like there is such an emphasis on avoiding typos in early drafts. Why is that? you know why is that and and what happens is when, when when you avoid typos you you have to have a lot of people work on the formatting in a document when you share it to other folks that generates a lot of work, but it doesn't necessarily create value for the client because they oh, the client only sees the final draft. The reason why I thought to write this is because I thought that there was a disconnect between the work we are told as junior lawyers at large firms to do and how that helps us develop our careers and whether that creates value for clients. And I think all of those themes are all tied together, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. that particular example, I have to say, really resonated with me. If I think about the thousands of hours collectively over my career that I have poured over advices to ensure that there was not a single typo because those advices, they were a work of art. Let me tell you, Alex, they were my creation, a work of (laughs) art. And when I sent that out into the world, that was was the... um, That was me, it was my branding, it was everything. And if there was a typo there, you were taught to be mortified. Mortified that a typo got out there. So that's how, and that was the culture. That was the culture. And that was the culture that was, um, that's how you were trained. Remember those first few letters you got back that your partner had reviewed and all of that red (laughs) ink? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's how we were trained. I talk about being incredibly fortunate I had. Um, a wife who was at home full-time being able to look after the family. Um, I was born in the right time, the right place, the right gender, the right colour, and I was able to succeed in that kind of model where it was just how many hours you could deliver. If you had some other basic skills, you were a pretty decent lawyer and you could relate to clients, then it was about your entire success um, and your elevation in the law firm was hitting those numbers and not just hitting them hitting them in a way that you exceeded everyone else so but I was in that incredibly fortunate position where I had all of those things and I could put the 10 years in and then you know what happens once you've done that you perpetuate it because the unspoken truth is you say well I did that time I did and so if you want to get here too You've got to put in that time. You've got to do those chronologies. You've got to check for those typos. You've got to, you've got to spend three months in a warehouse reviewing documents in the middle of Shenzhen, a province in China. I just remember those examples, and that was that's the model. Um, but um, uh, but it's a heartbreak. It's actually a heartbreak because um, it creates that misery you talk about, profitable misery um and it's incredibly unhealthy
1: it it really is and you know i'm heartened by the fact that i think these are topics that people are talking about now and i'm not going to predict the demise of the billable hour i think a lot of people have done that over the years but i do think that we are having more of a conversation today and and as i as i mentioned you know um i'm certainly not the only lawyer on on social media although i think i'm uh, popular among those in legal technology or uh, folks who are in corporate legal departments, um, there's a lot of younger lawyers coming up speaking to issues like that anxiety, the yeah. career development, yep. uh, the issues with working at firms. And you know, to the firm's credit, some of them have tried to bring everyone back into the fold and, and try to adapt and evolve. But um, you know I will say that I am surprised at the persistence of some of these cultural values and focus on billable hour for these firms yeah. have. Earlier this week, I posted a video of, of making fun of the billable hour and how it prevents tech adoption. And yep. <laughs> the vast majority of commentators from the legal industry, these are GCs, law students, these are uh, lawyers uh, and paralegals, they all said, yes, this is a problem. A select group of large law firm partners came came at it from a different perspective and, and kind of tried to justify it. Which you know, to their credit, they are kind of at the forefront of dealing with clients. Maybe there are business and market dynamics that we're not aware of that, that caused the billable hour to continue. But I just thought it was interesting that the perspective was so different between the large firm leadership and yep. essentially everyone else.
0: Let me ask you this, Alex, do you think this is going to have to be generational and that leadership, the current leadership, we just have to bide our time for the new generation um, to take over. Is it is it generational? So it's just going to take a long time.
1: I think it could be. I think there's going to be a couple of forces that uh, that happen. First, I think the most powerful one will come from the clients. If clients yes. are asking for billable hours, then then really yes. I'm not sure that this is going anywhere. And if they put uh, fee pressures on their their outside counsel, these uh these corporate legal departments. Um, I think that poses uh, the most potential for change. And this goes ex- beyond billable hour. It also extends to technology. Uh, yeah, buyers can ask their outside firms to, to, take on tech- you know, to, to adopt technology. Corporate legal departments and GCs and CLOs have the ability to, to, to almost tell outside law firms to fix their diversity issues. I feel like the buyers, the corporate legal departments are really central to all of this. And a lot of it is that we are having more of a discussion. Maybe part of it is through social media, but also I think through articles, through just kind of the community talking about it. And yes, a lot of these will come. A lot of these changes will come from uh, younger lawyers, you know, including elder millennials like myself, who are you know kind of on the in between Gen Z and Gen X. Yeah, I,
0: I was on a panel actually uh, last week. It was in London. The Financial Times was. Um, had a, had a day event. And I on that panel, I, I put this following proposition that it was 100% in the hands and the responsibility of the general counsel to change the way they engage law firms. And, and there was 0% responsibility on the law firms. And there should be zero expectation on the law firms because um, their financial model is different. And one of the things I've learned is law firms are excellent at delivering on what clients ask for. So it's all a question. So I don't know if that's extreme, but I say the responsibility is 100% on the the buyers because that's what's going to drive the change.
1: I, I like that framing because it's as if, you know, and I don't know if this is the case, but if going away from the billable hour earns the firm less money, for all of these noble purposes, I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow too. How how can you tell a firm yeah. to make less money yeah. for the greater yeah. good? Uh, I like the framing of, of this is in the hands of the of the buyer, the GCs, the CLOs, and I, I'll tell you a funny comment that I got. Um, I want to say a day or two ago from somebody who's from a large firm and very candid on, on posted this on LinkedIn said, "We as firms will not make any changes until our clients demand it." Uh, there you and go. he was, and I appreciated that that bluntness, that that, that straight up honesty, because I think that, that that speaks to what a lot of firms are thinking. And so I, I like the way that you framed it.
0: Why would you change what's working perfectly well and which which your clients are happy with? Um, you, you wouldn't. You'd only change. And I've seen it before. Law firms are excellent. They're really smart people. They and they deliver what clients want. So it's all a question. That's why I say it's one hundred percent responsibility. But think Mm -hmm. about the, for me, think about having a culture where you are focused only on delivering outcomes, um, pricing on those outcomes, and working out the most efficient and fastest way to get there. Think about that as a recruiting tool when you go to law school and you say, here is our model. We train you to basically deliver on outcomes and our our um, financial model is based on delivering those outcomes as quickly and efficiently as fo- possible. W- w- where would you go if you were a law student and you had that option, or you had? I remember, I think it was Yale Law School wrote the article, uh, wrote an article about the billable hour and what the commitment meant meant for a, you know two thousand hours, which was a standard. W- what would you choose? I th- I think. For the firms that are bold, I think it's such a differentiator and I don't believe at all they'll actually be less profitable. I think they'll work out, the smart ones will work out ways to be more profitable Mm -hmm. Um, because, in fact, the billable hour restrains you from being able to um, develop a muscle or muscles in relation to delivering outcomes and paying true, getting well rewarded for those outcomes because that's what GCs want. I want something to take longer. They want you to get the result as quickly as possible. I think I'm on a bit of a rant there, Alex, but <laughs> but 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 the topic deserves a bit of a rant because of all things that we've talked about.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you know, I always think to walk tell the firm that does not charge by the billable hour. That's the example I call out. How is it that the world's most How profitable
0: firm? Yeah, doesn't how has that not been a beacon for others two days ago i asked that very question to an audience and the audience kind of shrugged their shoulders and said ah oh, that firm's different
1: so i wanted to bring that up because i've heard the same thing oh you're going to bring up wattle they are different i will tell you what's left unsaid that may get me in some trouble with some firms out there i think wattle is different because of the value that they bring to their clients and i think that that value is not quite so obvious with other firms and so if you cannot command that sort of perception of value, then maybe you're relying on these other secondary ways to make money, right? It's because it's Wachtell clearly brings value to the table.
0: Because when you get a one-line invoice for an eye-watering amount and you're continually happy to pay that amount, yes. you, you must be getting value.
1: Well, I'd be curious, you know, in, in future, if anybody ever tells you, it gives you a good reason why they can't do it too, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about it. On the other side, as you know, there's plenty of plaintiff's firms that operate on contingency, yeah. which is not exactly perfect, but I have found that it's often more aligned to client yeah. outcomes than not just because they've got a skin in the game. It's almost about who carries the risk of, of not getting the outcome you want. And the billable hour protects firms from, from that risk. Yeah.
0: Well, not only that, in fact, only a couple of days ago, I heard an example of a senior partner at a significant firm who basically ran for re-election essentially on the ticket that he wanted to change the financial modelling of the firm so it moved away from the billable hour. Now, he lost that ticket and so he's stepped down. One of the things he said to me, one of the most significant areas of resistance was internally from within the finance team of that law firm because every part of that finance team and all of the measurables and the way it simply operated was dependent upon time recording okay so they didn't actually have they didn't have the infrastructure to move away from it in fact they were so wedded to it that they would have been completely lost so that was a perspective that I hadn't if I thought about it, it would have been clear, but I hadn't actually had it spelled out to me. And I thought, how about that? It's the finance department within the law firm that is so wedded to being able to measure by reference to the bill hour that they'd be completely lost if you tried to move away from that model.
1: I mean, there's there's a lot of unpack there. I think there's a lot of organizational incentives that uh, yeah, yeah. That keep that inertia to keep doing things the way they are. Yeah. Now, Alex,
0: we could talk on this topic for hours, but we won't. Let's move on. When you look back on your career, and it's still an early career, talk to me about some of the pivotal moments for you that really kind of shape your career, the way you look at things now, the approach that you take. Take me through a couple of those.
1: Well, I'll tell you the first one has to do with everything we're talking about. Uh, I did not thrive in an environment that was measured by the hour by not changing things. And so uh, I think the pivotal moment first came when it was like, I had to consider what did I wanna do with my career? I, I had created all of this, these fancy line items on my resume and I thought, this isn't exactly what I wanna do. Making the pivot to t- the technology world, uh, specifically to sales, that was a, a pretty big pivot. And what it taught me there was that the values there are very different. You know, Instead of focusing on perfection of work product, you were measured by activity. Uh, how quickly could you get in front of people with something that's maybe barely passable, like a pitch, like an email that's got typos in it, but actually may resonate with with a potential client? So I, I learned how to almost I unlearn, unlearned some of the habits I learned at uh, from from being in big law, and I learned that sometimes how your your client, your customer feels about you matters more than how did you format this particular document. So. That was a pretty pivotal moment. That led me to this entirely different path, where um, I started to kind of take a step back and realize that the corporate legal department is central to all of this. And I pivoted away from e-discovery towards contracts because I saw that contracts is a big problem for corporate legal departments. And I had no experience working on contracts. I was a litigator, um, and so it was a it was a bit of a of a change. Um, but that kind of has been a theme throughout my career, and I keep on adapting and changing uh in when the pandemic hit i left the world of of sales to go into this community team because uh, partly my experiments on social media creating content creating making jokes publicly uh sharing stories of my past setbacks just putting myself out there uh led me to this other entirely separate path of, of of um on the community team at ironclad so Anyways, uh, there's been several pivotal moments, but it all started really when I when I left the law and, and started to to see the entire ecosystem differently than than as a young associate. It,
0: it, it's funny. I often talk about. Um, I don't know if it's 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 men in particular, but we often identify by reference to what we do. We are what we do. So when we walk in a room, we can say we're a lawyer. We work as a law. We work at a law firm a very prestigious lot we're a partner whatever that might be mm-hmm. tell me about when that disappeared for you what was that a struggle i had that experience myself and i realized how much of who i was was by reference to what i did um, and when then i couldn't i didn't walk into a room and say hey i'm a partner at x what would i say what and I don't know if it is more of a male thing, but I'd be interested because you you made that transition out of being a lawyer, having invested all that time. How how was that?
1: Uh it was a struggle and it continues to be a, a challenge. But I do think that as I've gotten older, and I'm not uh I'm I'm you know, I'm turning forty next year. I'm not super old, but I I feel like when I was in my you know twenties and early thirties, a lot of what I did was defined by the job I held. To some extent, I, I've evolved from that because I started to see myself uh, multidimensionally, especially when I became a father. I have a daughter who's almost four years old. And I think at that moment I realized you can continue to define yourself by your work, but now you're responsible for this other person. You've got these other, life is just all around you. And and it's more than just about the work. And incidentally, the reason why I started posting on social media is because I I hit a crossroads, um, we'll call it maybe, two two and a half maybe 3 years ago right right before the pandemic when i realized that you know at that point i was like i wanted to become a vp of sales i wanted to be an executive because again i defined myself by my work and i realized like i couldn't make all of the meetings um, my time was sort of limited uh, i could work late at night and early in the morning but but meeting that's not when meetings were held so i took a step off that track and said okay i'm going to go back to being an individual contributor seller what problems can I solve and what assets do I have? I quickly identified, I had a very small following then. And I said, I have this small audience. I don't know what to do with it, but they seem to like what I post. So I'll double down on that instead. And so I would stay up late, you know, after my daughter would go to bed, I would, you know, write some posts or like early in the morning. And so I, I found this entire path of, of social media and, and creating a personal brand for myself because I was solving for a problem that I could solve that was in line with being a father who had to spend time with his daughter. And so um, that's why I still struggle with the work because I think I'm still, I still think about work a lot, but at the same time, I'm trying to design work around my personal life to get all the things I want. And sometimes that leads me to roles, jobs, and titles that do not necessarily have a linear career path ahead of them, but uh, I really enjoy what I do and Ironclad treats me uh, very well. And so, uh, I, I, that has helped a lot.
0: You have discovered that it's about the journey, that it is about the learning, the, the, the being uncomfortable, and then actually being able to take advantage uh, uh, of that and seeing where it leads you in terms of a career path and actually trying to work out what the passion is and following that too. And, and look what it's done. Um, so, so kudos to you, Alex, because it takes courage. It, it, you know, it's a lot easier to continue. Well, I, I won't say it's a lot easier, but, but you can certainly forgive those that continue to do what they don't love that much. But it's a bit of security. It's a bit of identity. It, it's hard to break free of uh, because the world's in an uncertain place. From my perspective, not too many people go back and say to me, you know what, I wish I didn't take as many risks as I, I did. The, the the most popular answer I get to the question of um what would you tell your twenty five year old self uh, the most popular is to stop worrying so much and secondly, just I wish I'd taken a few more risks um, and that's exactly what it seems like you've done um and it and it's working out pretty good for you i reckon alex
1: it it has and I feel very lucky because I did read all of those studies about the regrets of, of later career folks. I did see that risk line. Um, people didn't. People regretted not following their hunches. That was what took me to the first step of leaving big law to go to a plaintiff firm, which felt like a huge risk at the time. You know, I could have gotten to another big firm, you know, made a big salary. But I, what I learned over time is that um, I am in a very fortunate position to take those risks um, at the time. I. I didn't have kids. Um, my wife works, and so I was able to take those risks and kind of lean into them when things got crazy in the world, like during the pandemic. Now I feel like I, you know, not everyone has that ability to do that, whether it's student debt or family obligations. But um, because I'm in that position, I'm just going to run towards it and and kind of design my career, my life in a way that, that I can do for as long as possible rather than optimizing for some, you know, some career path that might not be actually that meaningful to me. When I'm
0: lying there in that nursing home and I've got my mental faculties, maybe not my physical, but I'm lying there, what am I going to say to myself? Am I going to ask myself what would have happened if I did Or am I going to say, I'm glad I didn't try? Um, And that test, I think it's a great test. Think about whether, in fact, whether it's a problem you're dealing with today or whether it's a career decision you're making, fast forward, you're lying in that nursing home, ask yourself that question um, and, and, and have that as the reference point. Because I just think certainly for me it gave me a very different perspective mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. i i knew personally i would be the i wonder what would have happened if i did and that's that's regret land and we never want to be we absolutely. never want to be in, re, in regret land
1: yeah absolutely and as lawyers to tie it all the way back i think we are trained to to view all the downsides and certainly i was like that too um, what I've been surprised by in this very strange journey that I've been on is that I never predicted the upside. I never imagined that, you know, I would be able to develop a channel on social media and that it would feed into my my job. And so uh, that's one public example, but there's lots of small ones that, that you never know um, what could possibly be out there. Uh, you always focus on the negatives.
0: You're like a little startup yourself. Here's what I say about startups: the downs are much lower. The downside, they are much lower than you've ever experienced in a security job. But the highs, the highs are exponentially higher, and that's that's the kind of trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. And you do have to ask yourself, as a person, whether whether because it's it's not for everyone, and, and also everyone doesn't get those opportunities. So, um, right. right? Okay. A couple of questions to, to, to wrap up, Alex. Um, we've talked about some of the challenges. Any other challenges in legal that you see looking into the future? What do you think are the really, aside from the billable hour, what do you think is the real, you know, some of the real challenges for, for the in-house teams, for the law firms, for the legal industry more broadly?
1: I, I think for law firms, we've covered some of them. For corporate legal departments, I would say that it's, a challenge and an opportunity to become more aligned with their business this is something i did not appreciate before i started talking to them Um, there is a perception that legal is a cost center that's always the department of no and taking forever to review things Um, that i think proposes an opportunity because unlike law firms uh, their uh, corporate legal departments are not constrained by billable hours or a finance team that wants to to focus on on amount of hours worked Um, corporate legal departments have been leading the charge on innovation, I think. Um, But as we move in through the years, I think we're going to see them becoming more of a partner to the business. And in, in, in the world I inhabit in terms of contracts, I see that by the move towards automating a lot of that process where before it was, a lot of it was done on paper and pencil, you know, scanning a PDF or a contract request, uh, technology is really enabling them to serve their, their their partners on the business side better. So that's just one example, and I'm sure uh, in your world you see lots of them, it just being more and, aligned and, with the business.
0: And do you have any sense, um, you know, we're in real uncertain times right now. We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got supply chain disruption. We've got the prospect of a major recession. Um, some real uncertainty out there right now. Any sense of how that is going to impact you know, what the future looks like in legal over the course of the next five years or so? Is it a tailwind, for example, to um, uh, technology playing a greater role or is it a headwind because uh, because of the nervousness people, you know, just get back into the old habits? Any sense about those macro factors and how they might impact on on the industry?
1: I think, unfortunately, it's a headwind for corporate legal because they're going to be asked to do more in a more complicated world. And I guess very, yeah, with less and, and and maybe fortunately and selfishly for, for folks like you and me, I think it's a tailwind, um, to come up to, for them to find, for us to play a role in helping legal do more with less through technology, through automation. I think it's a tailwind to firms that are forward thinking that can support. Their are clients in a way that's, um, that's not just billing lots of hours, raising rates on, on fees and things like that. So, um, but I do think that it, there's, the world is getting more complicated over time. Let's find a way to, to help legal get more of those things done.
0: Two final questions, Alex. First one, anything that keeps you up at night now?
1: Apart from your four-year-old. I think that right now we are going through a kind of a macro slowdown. Um, I wouldn't say that it keeps me up at night just because, you know, I've seen a couple of these cycles and certainly you've seen many of these cycles. Um, But I do think that there is this level of worry about change that that everyone has. And I certainly am uh, worried about just like, how do we know what what the world will look like next year or next month? Um, But other than that, I think I'm just an optimist by nature, Jim. you know, I imagine you are as well, it's, it's, I think that any crisis comes with opportunity.
0: Yeah. And, and the world needs optimists, Alex. Absolutely. (laughs) So one, one last question. Sure. The, the amount of time between when you wake up and you check your emails, less
1: than 30 seconds or more than 30 seconds? (laughs) Uh, It used to be more than 30 seconds. I think these days, less than 30 seconds.
0: Less, less, <laughs> the, well, let me tell you, you're in good company because that's the answer I've had in my last five interviews. So Alex, so it's, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Same here, Jim. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you listeners for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me jim the host of the show via email jim at pursuit p-e-r-s-u-i-t dot com we'd love to hear from you